This is the Emerging Women Podcast, where we become inspired to live and lead from the truth of who we are. We're creating a new paradigm for power that includes the feminine perspective because the world needs it. Welcome, Mirabai. It's such an honor to have you on the Emerging Women podcast and to just bathe in your wisdom for the next hour. So welcome, welcome. So good to be here with you. Thank you, Chantal. Thanks so much for this invitation. I feel such an alignment with you and your people. That is the word um, for sure. So just to give emerging women, our audience, a little bit more of a background into how amazing our guest is today, Mirabai Starr has taught philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico. She is a thought leader. She is a prolific writer. She's written over a dozen books on the subject of mysticism in many, many different um, religious religious foundations. And she herself is a modern mystic and a channel of what, and I use that word in the broadest of terms, of what it means to be a feminine mystic on the planet here today. And I also use the word modern in the broadest of terms because in the the world of mysticism, how does mysticism get reinvented? What makes it modern? What makes it traditional? It seems to transcend time. And in Mirabai's works, in all of her works, she has a way of connecting the, the juice and the relevancy of our past mystics and making it extremely useful and um, sort of like a, a spiritual beacon for those of us who are seekers of more meaning and um, more growth in our life. So um, this is not a historical account of past mystics. This is somebody who is bringing mysticism alive and in the package of the feminine. And I welcome her to this show and I'm so excited to dig in with you, Mirabai, and get into where this all started. Where did your connection with the mystics start and how has it evolved over these 12 books to where we land on the most recent book, which is Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. Mm. Welcome. Thanks so much, Chantal. What a joy to be with you, all all of you. Um, Well, gosh, I guess I would start by saying that my family was part of the early counterculture movement of the 1960s. My parents were both anti-war activists, I guess, peace active. My my sister prefers peace activists to anti-war. And along with that whole political upheaval of the 60s came this kind of expansion of consciousness, you know, that was going um, going on in people as they were as they were imagining new ways of living as a human family that really included uh, a a whole new spiritual orientation, especially in America, you know, the land of the kind of Judeo-Christian, primarily Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. 
my family um, was Jewish, but completely non-religious. In fact, pretty anti-religious. They, they were very suspicious of organized religion of any kind. But there was this deep hunger in their community and in my parents themselves for meaning, you know, for beauty, for connection to something greater than that which we could experience, you know, certainly in the in the ordinary constructs of life in America. So um, so that's all to say that they we lived in on Long Island in New York and um, and through that whole upheaval of, of the 60s and late 60s, early 70s, they decided to uproot us and and just get on the road and look for an alternative way of life to kind of get back to the land somewhere where the land was calling. And we ended up through a long series of adventures that I write about in my memoir, Caravan of No Despair. Uh, we ended up in New Mexico, in the in the mountains of northern New Mexico, where Lama Foundation is, that's the place where, for those of you who are familiar with Ram Dass's iconic book, Be Here Now, it's where Be Here Now happened. It was created by the Lama community. And we settled in Taos, where um, we are still, my whole family and my husband's family and our children and grandchildren and parents, many generations mm -hmm. here, still this place that's so sacred, where we feel so connected to the earth. But anyway, in that whole in that whole movement, there was an exposure to a lot of different spiritual paths. And um, and so I just kind of naturally at age 11, when this all began, took them all on, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, Sufism, the, the mystical branch of Islam, the Jewish mysticism, which is at my, you know, the core of my own family lineage. The Christian mystics enchanted me, and of course, the indigenous wisdom of of New Mexico that just permeates everything here. Mm, nice, and and yet there, it's it's really interesting because um, and that book be here now definitely in the top ten, um, as I myself was yearning and longing for spiritual awakening, such a key part, but there's something in your writing that um, speaks to me in such a deep way. It feels tender. It's like taking a bath in honey mm -hmm. and very feminine. Like, this is like, I wanna move my body. It's embodied, it's not, transcendent as you say and you address this um in your most you address this i think in all of your work but your approach to the um the wisdom and uh the works of the mystics has a very distinct approach and i know that you're not only about the feminine but i think that you're one of the uh, most prominent spiritual teachers that is reinventing what it means to um, be enlightened, to evolve into spirituality in a way that that feels inclusive. And I'd love to hear what your filter is on that process of emergence is the word that I love to use because that I'm, you know, emerging women, we have emerging human, but Enlightened feels, I, 
that's hard for me. It feels separate. And so what's the word that you would use? And what is your filter on that process of seeking and self-actualization? Beautiful, Chantal. Well, in some ways, I I like the word reclaiming. Mm. Because I feel like the feminine wisdom is at the heart of all the world's great spiritual traditions. And it's always been there, but it's been buried. And so I, I sort of think of myself as a contemporary um, spiritual archaeologist or something. You know, I'm, I'm, fi- I'm surveying <laughs> the domain of the world's religions and locating the, the jewels of feminine wisdom and excavating them and lifting them up. And it's a lot of work, but I know they're there and I know they matter and I know they're going to change everything when we have access to them again. And so what I what I feel is my task in this life, at least for now, at least at this moment in time, is, is reclaiming that feminine way of connecting to spirit to the sacred to each other which is in many ways the same thing you know community connection is sacred uh but that it's reclaiming this yeah for people of all genders Mm -hmm. so it's not just about the girls club to replace the boys club You know, it's not about dismantling the patriarchy so the matriarchy can take over and start bossing people around instead. Mm -hmm. It's about reclaiming these feminine attributes in all of us and people of all genders who, who are thirsty for a more feminine way of knowing and being. And what do I, what do I mean by feminine? Maybe I should take a moment to. Yes, please. Clear that. Yeah. Up. Again, this is these are attributes that are alive in all of us, people of all genders, as the masculine attributes are. And the masculine attributes have been, you know, super useful over time, but have in many ways become counterproductive and even toxic. I think we can agree in many ways. So what do I mean? I mean, attributes like loving kindness, mercy, compassion um connection lifting each other up honoring and adoring that which is most beautiful in all of us and it's and all those beautiful things are there to be found it's also about the less sweet aspects of the feminine more you know of the wild and dark feminine attributes like fierce truth telling you know, that, and they're often seemingly paradoxical things. That's why the subtitle of my book, Wild Mercy, well, even Wild Mercy, you know, it's two kind of seemingly differing um, images or attributes, right? And and living the fierce and tender wisdom of the women mystics, where it's both fierce and tender. You know, there's a there's a chaos, a beautiful chaos and creativity and unbridled, unlegislated, unpredictable quality to the feminine that I'm also inviting into the mix. And that's dangerous, you know, that stirs, doesn't just stir the pot and upset the apple cart, but has the potential for dismantling the entire structure in which we've based all of our spiritual and political and scientific I think we're ready for a dismantling 
Mm-hmm. And I so appreciate that. And I think you're, I love how you say you want to serve and you want to uplift these voices that, and the stories that you tell, there's, there's a lot here that hasn't, you know, uh, been brought to light and hasn't been visible. And, and yet you are choosing those stories, right? Whereas some of the stories that you choose have been sort of under the radar, these uh, amazing women voices and deities and mystics and who had tremendous mystical power, tremendous mystical power and followings and, and people laying themselves at their feet. And we don't hear about that. So yes, you're serving them, but you're also making that choice to interpret um, and, and bring alive a certain kind of spirituality that that I think has been demonized by the great spiritual traditions and even the spirituality that came out of the 60s. People like, uh, it's not that Ram Dass is evil, but the the overprivileging of the transcendent spiritual experience versus what you bring, which is this, uh, the embodied spiritual experience which has the, the body's been demonized in a lot of these traditions. And what you're doing is you're raising up voices that are saying, no, the body's essential. No, we need to put our foot <laughs> down on, you know, and, and really connect with the earth. And so that's a choice that you're making that in that puts you a little bit more than just lifting up the voices. And so I just want to honor you for that um, filter that you're bringing and just, you know, here, here you're, I know we're being like kind of careful around the masculine and the patriarchy. And yet you did say this is dangerous. And you did say that we could dismantle it. And is that what you think is needed right now? Yes. And I think it's happening anyway. I'm just joining the party. You know, there's in the beginning of wild mercy, I talk about, it's like the, the, earth is cracking open and the women are rising and we're just spilling out everywhere in the public square and and uh, announcing ourselves that this is this is the time but again it's not just women you know that the entire spectrum of gender is crying out for this way of being that is that seems to be vitally needed if we're going to survive the current multiple catastrophes that are upon us, you know, in all spheres, um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the environmental uh, crises and the the social realities that are so desperately broken. Um, it, it is, you know, I'm not the only one, you're saying it, uh, the Dalai Lama is saying it, that it is the feminine that is probably going to save us and enable us to thrive together with all created beings with mm-hmm. the animals and the plants with each other with with the air and with the water in this symbiotic relationship that is the true thing you know the the true thing is that we do all belong to each other and we have forgotten because this boy-shaped paradigm that we've inherited through all the the religious and social traditions has have convinced us that we are separate and that 
you know, the mystical wisdom tells us in every religion that that's an illusion, that separation. Right. So through the, the lens of the feminine, and I love your distinction, it's, it's not about gender, and I'm careful to make that same dis distinction. And I'm, I'm also, you know, ultimately we want to balance, right? But I'll tell you, I am tired of the balance conversation. Yes, me too. I think, right? I think, like you said, like you started the book, it's, we need a tsunami of feminine right now in order to get to balance. And to, if we're just gonna be careful that we're you know, taking care of the wounded masculine along the way, we are not gonna get the work done. And it's like a tsunami, this book, Wild Mercy is a tsunami of the feminine. Mm -hmm. And that's, I just want on this podcast for people to understand <laughs> that, um, that you know, there's something unapologetic in when you're cracking open the earth and the and the women are that image definitely feels very powerful and it's not tender tiptoeing right right thank you so much for acknowledging that Chantal. you're absolutely right and inevitably i have men come back at me saying but what you know it needs to be balanced and it's not just about the women it's like they completely miss the point and you mm -hmm. totally get it and affirm it. So thank you. Yes, I, I need, think we need to overemphasize the feminine for a long time to- A long to time, a long time, because, you know, we do so much work in, you know, a totally different area here where we're not having these conversations, but in tech companies. And I see the men longing for it too. And anytime we bring them together and they have conversation, they're like, wow, I've never shared like this. And, you know, so I feel the, the world craving this too, men and women. And I feel uh, the urgency. Let's say, let's take the urgency out. It's coming people yeah. and um, it's not going to happen overnight. So we got to settle in yeah. and let, give this the room that it needs because we have certainly given the masculine lots of runway. Yes, yes, yes. Lots of space. So, so I want to kind of get into um, Wild Mercy a little bit and hopefully hear some stories um, live here because I think that is just one of your greatest gifts um, is storytelling. Mm -hmm. And um, we learn through stories and I've already just have so many imprints from this particular book, Wild Mercy, and I'm sure in your memoir, there's just dozens. Um, but I want to start with Breaking Open. I want to start with breaking open because in the emerging women community, we have people on a spectrum. Um, we tend to attract people who are at the end of a certain phase in their life, the end of a healing journey. And when you have, I don't know if anybody's healed from anything, but when you're at the end of your, when you're at the very end of your healing journey, that's when the emerging journey starts because the fire just starts to like, you want to take all the transformation and all the growth and you, you just naturally want to bring it out. And in breaking open this the chapter in your book, you talk about longing and um, those seeds of longing. Tell us what you mean by longing and why, why that's part of the breaking open phase, if you will. Mm. 
Yeah, I feel like longing in some ways has gotten a bad rap, not only in the spiritual community that's, you know, where the, one of the favorite uh, buzz terms these days is is non-duality, you know, that's all one. And so there's nothing to long for because you're not separate from the divine, that kind of, of uh you know, Once spirit. again, we're demonizing any flavor of desire. Just okay. saying. Go ahead. Precisely, <laughs> Chantal. And and but also, you know, it, across the board in psychology, that there's the sense that that desire, that longing, that yearning, is an indication of delusion. Right? That we we think that 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 some there's something outside of ourselves, but it's all available within etc cetera, etc cetera. but longing is is our birthright i feel and in all the spiritual traditions at their mystical heart there are these these promptings of, of the spirit that say beloved i want to be with you i i want my it's like the deer thirsting for the living waters and you know the biblical in the biblical tradition there is this innate sense of well even if intellectually we know that yes we are always one with the one but there's this innate sense in in most of our hearts of of yearning that we see reflected in the poetry of the mystics in rumi you know why why do people so many English-speaking people say respond to the new translations, like by Coleman Barks, for instance, newish of the great, you know, 14th century, 13th century Persian poet, Sufi, Muslim poet, Nawaz Jalaluddin Rumi, because he speaks about that fire in the heart that longs for union with the beloved, and um. And so I'm very interested in reclaiming that. My namesake, the 16th century mystic from India, Hindu mystic Mirabai, who was madly in love with Krishna, the god of love. Her poetry is very similar to Rumi's. It's just overflowing with sensual imagery that evokes that fire of love longing. And so I am I just want us to reconnect with that innate fire of desire. You know, even if you don't believe in God, which which is, you know, a high percentage of the time, I don't, you know, not with my mind anyway, not as some kind of belief system uh, that that is connected to some personified being that pulls the puppet strings mm -hmm. I like that for me. And yet there is this deep sense of of love, of love longing for that which is the source of really of all love itself. Mm -hmm. Hello, lovely listeners. I want to pause for a moment here to make sure that you know how you can get even more access to this type of inspiration and support. Emerging Women has its own membership community where you get teachings from incredible female leaders and coaching support directly from me, as well as other brilliant members within the Emerging Women tribe every month. If you are ready to go deeper into your own leadership and emerging journey, head over to EmergingWomen.com for a free trial of our membership community. We've truly designed it as a hub for women like you who want to create change in the world. Don't go it alone, sisters. 
head over to emergingwomen.com forward slash membership and start your free trial today. Now, let's get back to our conversation. There's something, you know, you kind of go into this in the book, but you've got in longing, there's both desire, but there's also grief. Mm. It's sort of like longing brings grief and desire together. Yes, exactly. You know, there, the mystic poets often speak about the longing that the longing that is the answer to longing or the the beautiful wound, Teresa of Avila calls it. There is this connection, you're absolutely right, Chantal, between our heart's deepest pain and the the yearning for connection to the sacred. When we experience great loss, in fact, and are shattered by grief, that shattering often opens us into this kind of sacred landscape, this this space of blessing that we never would have chosen, right? I mean, we would have perhaps chosen access to the to that blessing space, but not to what brought us there. You know, I would do anything to have my loved ones back who I've lost too soon, right? And yet those exact losses became these openings, these portals to connection to what I longed for most. It's a strange, peculiar, unfortunate design in my opinion, but it, it seems to work out that way that that our, li- our life's greatest challenges become these, um, what do I wanna say, access points mm-hmm. to, to the greatest love beauty, meaning, connection. Right. So in that breaking open, you know, people have had various levels of, let's say, life's opportunities to break open, trauma, grief. And, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, does one have to have something huge? And I know, I know you've had some big trauma and big grief and, um, what if, you know, and we can talk about that, but what's the, what's the true way in here to re using that longing, you know, and just in, in a way that keeps, keeps us connected to whether we say God or source, or, um, does it have to be such a big trauma? And, and for those of us who have had big traumas, how can we really embrace them? Um, as a way that can can even strengthen our connection. Mm, such an important, beautiful question, Chantal. Um, and people ask me all the time, do you have, you know, is trauma and and suffering required in order to have a felt experience of connection to the sacred? Mm-hmm. And um, my answer is no. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of inevitable that there will be losses along the way and not just deaths but all kinds of losses that you know a serious health diagnosis uh, or other physical challenge that just kind of changes the way we relate to everything you know there are financial losses there are obviously losses of relationships and breaking up of love love connections that are um, that that also change everything they they come with multiple associated losses like the loss of community so there are lots of ways that all of us inevitably navigate these kind of 
shattering experiences. Um, but what I'm really, okay, a couple of things. One is for me, the feminine way in, is tender, is loving, is comforting and nurturing. It's a, it's a place of refuge, like the great mother. And so there's no reason, no matter what your experience of loss is, whether it's been traumatic or let's say more ordinary, there is no reason to rush into meaning, to meaning making, to trying to use it as a, 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 an opening to, to God or spirit or anything else. There is an invitation that we are given when we suffer to be with it tenderly, lovingly, um, with forgiveness, with spaciousness. What helps me so much in any difficult experience is to reach out to the Divine Mother. And she, you know, maybe she's just in my imagination. <laughs> I'm not saying there is this objective figurehead called the Divine Mother, but I, in my holy imagination, in my sacred place, in my mind, heart, heart, mind, I call on her. And for me, she's the dark feminine, you know, mm. Kali in the, in the beautiful Hindu tradition or the black Madonna in the Christian tradition. She's this great, sensuous, sensual, fierce, tender, unconditionally loving being when I can't fucking handle it anymore. I'm like, oh yeah, you take me, hold me, show me the way because I cannot do this alone. And that helps so much because I feel held, I feel supported, I feel challenged in a tender, loving way. And I remember that I belong to her and therefore to all of, of creation. Mm. Yeah, I'm remembering the, uh, the story, which people, I'm telling you, um, I cried several times reading this book. Mm. I never cry when <laughs> I read a book, unless it's fiction. Yeah. Literally, the storytelling is so good. And it was the mustard seed, of course, it's the story um, about a mama, right? And um, but it's also a story about how we're all connected, and recognizing how we're all connected sort of helps to alleviate the suffering. Mm, I'm so glad you brought that up, Chantal. That's the other thing about these these experiences of suffering in our lives. If we can possibly when we're in the process of of leaning into it or being present with it or showing up for it rather than running away from from it and plugging up the hole with various substance use or whatever we do mm -hmm. not feel our feelings when we show up for it one of the ways that helps me so much and it's often a spontaneous feeling but sometimes i have to consciously remember is that my experience of loss right now or suffering or challenge or even unbearable anguish, if it gets to that, is part of the human condition, even though it feels very special and unique to me, and is. I, But I recall that because this is part of the human condition, 
this this particular kind of suffering, jealousy, abandonment, whatever it might be, that means I'm not alone. You know, that I belong to this, this web, this net of interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh called it. And that's so comforting. You know, that all people have suffered throughout time and will in time to come, and that we're in it together. Mm-hmm. So thanks yes. for bringing that up. Yeah, it's, it's uh, one of the stories that actually just made me cry. Now, let's move on a little bit because um, we talked a little, we talked about uh, transcendence versus embodiment. And in, being embodied is such a huge piece of this book. And I really appreciate that um, for myself and who's, you know, done a lot of meditation and been around that and really wanting to transcend. And through all these mystics, you have proof and proof and proof that actually being embodied is the full experience. And you have a term for it. And I can't remember, I I was going to write it down. But you also say, you also say, because you are a mystic, and you're full of paradox, like a good mystic. um, You also say that, you know, this whole process of of reconnecting to source um, or reclamation um, requires annihilation. So bring us into that paradox and Mm. self-annihilation. Right, right. Thank you. The mystics of all traditions, you know, speak about things like dying before you die. And again, you don't have to go seeking these annihilating experiences. They come with life that that there are certain experiences, not just painful ones, but also joyous glimpses, those unitive experiences of of being in nature and and, you know, in being at the ocean or in the high desert where I live the sunset, the snow falling, where we can momentarily lose our sense of a separated self and experience this kind of merging with all that is. This is built in. This is woven in, let's Mm -hmm. say, to the human condition. These are ordinary mystical moments that, that belong to us in everyday life. And And yet when we cultivate certain kinds of spiritual practices like meditation, we can just nurture the soil from which these spontaneous mystical experiences might more easily flower, you know, break open the hardened seedbed of our our ordinary consciousness and and yield this kind of harvest of, of unitive experience. And it, so it is a paradox because the way of the feminine for me is the way of imminence, as you say. It's about embodiment. In the Jewish tradition, it's beautifully um, illuminated by the Shekhinah. The Shekhinah is the indwelling feminine presence of God. So there's the great transcendent unknowable holy one that can't, doesn't even have a name because it's so far beyond anything human beings can grasp with our minds, right? And also, she is imminence that breaks open and pours into all 
all created things. But, but the feminine for me is about not just imminence as opposed to transcendence. Right. But about this beautiful marriage of, of, you know, of imminence and transcendence, of the, of the great unknowable suchness of, of the holy and that which we experience in every fiber of our bodies and our lived experience. So yes, thank you for bringing that up because it's, it's not only embodiment because that would be just as illusory as only transcendence. Mm. That masculine way of, of getting up and out of the body and into altered states of consciousness. It's about mm. both. It's about bringing together. Yeah. And what's alive in me right now is this, um, the interconnectedness and how you bring that in, in those everyday moments and, and how much that can give us and remind us, right? And that's what you mean. The world is craving more awareness right now of our interconnectedness. But in so many ways, women have been orienting towards their, and I'm going to say women here, because just historic, like the history of women across the world, we have been raised to be oriented, to fit in, and to be hyper aware of sort of other. And what we're finding now is that there's such a mountain to climb for women to have their voices heard in places of power. And we need to hear those voices and to change culture, to change the current power paradigm, to dismantle the patriarchy. And so it's, we want the revolution in spirituality, certainly, because it's such a foundation for the revolution in power, I believe, but also to stand up for their, I don't want to use the word ego, but to really claim a sense of individuality and identity is important for all underrepresented people on the planet, because we have been so oriented to the we. And so I'm curious to see if there is room in your lens for, for that, a healthy expression of identity in our spiritual growth. Mm, excellent, excellent question. Yes. So I do not demonize the ego in mm. any way. What I make fun of, let's say, is <laughs> this kind of traditional picture of the lone prophet or, you know, savior who charges in on his white horse to save all the poor slobs that are suffering. You know, I'm challenging that paradigm in and saying that this prophetic kind of calling belongs to all of us. But I also make it really clear that the ego is a necessary vehicle for uh, embodiment. You know that just as a as our hands are as our um you know our creative impulses are our artistic temperaments all of it is needed and the ego is the is the shape that our particular gifts have to take just as our bodies shape our gifts mm, gift like that we bring that. to this world right now there's a can I just read a little yes, please. of lines that talk about this? You have come to understand, this is on page 61. You've come to understand that a functioning ego is a necessary vessel for an incarnate soul. 
You don't regard your ego as a problem. You just don't take it seriously, which used to piss your ego off given its self-important nature. Um, but then later I say at the end of that section, there are temples to build, curricula to develop, sonatas to compose, startups to start up. You did not buy your equanimity cheaply. Frequent firestorms eradicated your opinion on the matter. Multiple meltdowns led you to a place where your only option was to melt. Who knew that dissolving could be so sweet? And so there's this balance. Yes, we are annihilated. We melt. We have meltdowns <laughs> and we dissolve. And that's a beautiful thing because we dissolve into that which is. And then we get on with the business at hand. There are sonatas to compose and startups to start up. There are curricula to develop. There, there's shit to do. And that's what we're being called to do is to bring our essential felt experience of belonging into our particular form to do and offer and be what is ours what's given to us to do and offer and be in this world because we are needed. We are urgently needed, each mm. of us. Mm. Beautifully said, so beautifully said. I just, you know, and you're, you are at the center of a big community. You're a mama, you're a daughter, you're a, you know, you're, you're in the world and you're not in a cave is what I'm saying. <laughs> You're in the middle of your family and writing, geez, Louise, you know, over a dozen books and you're, you're, a, you know, holding a spiritual community. And I just, I feel like, um, you know, that there is shit to do yeah. and that this sort of lens and, and you really do draw on the mystics to facilitate that shit doing. <laughs> Right. I mean, I can feel that. And I would, I would, let's end on this question. What is the most powerful part of this work that you draw from that allows you to do all of the things that you feel called to do? Mm. You know, one of the things I love about the stories of the women mystics across the spiritual traditions, you know, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, um, indigenous traditions, is that these are women who were also ordinary people. You know, I mean, they were extraordinary, ordinary people, like you are, like we all are. And they had real lives and they had to tend those lives. And that I find that incredibly inspiring. So rather than being up on a pedestal as these so-called enlightened masters that are above it all and don't aren't bothered by the feelings <laughs> that the rest of us have to grapple with, they were deeply connected and neurotic and fearful and rude and kind and all of the things that we all are. And so I relate to them and and so they become these women mystics and the goddesses too, you know, across the traditions, the, the archetypal, let's call them wisdom beings, have become friends to me, dear friends and allies, family even. 
Like they are with me. They walk with me and they inspire me and they guide me and they goad me. <laughs> and and so um I think that's that's maybe the essence of of my work in the world is that I feel like I have this team of wisdom keepers who have become so dear to me and and so and available to me. And so I'm try I try to share them with, with others so that they can become your friends too. Mm. I mean, you could almost just pick today. I need Kali, (laughs) you know, today I need, you know, um, I love this. We don't have time for it, but um, the Rabia and the Howless and, you know, not being so focused on the how, you know, Um, I don't know if anybody can relate to that, but I sure can. Um, And like, there's just dozens and dozens of beautiful illustrations and stories that you could just bring one in in the morning and keep her with you and, you know, draw on them for different situations. So, so thank you for um, the work that you're doing, Mirabai. This has just been such a treat. And I hope everybody listening dives in to all of the works um, of Mirabai Star and the most recent Wild Mercy. And we have two more books coming because she just keeps going. So um, check her out at mirabystar.com and we have more details on the podcast page. So there will be more coming. Count on it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chantal, for sharing your community with me and me with your community. Lots of love. Big hug to all of you. Yeah.